are listening to the podcast of the White Church at the Elk River YMCA in Minnesota. Our mission is to seek Jesus, connect together, and share His love. Our scripture reading this morning is from 2 Kings chapter 5, verses 1-16. through 16. Naaman healed of leprosy. Now Naaman was commander of the army of the king of Aram. He was a great man in the sight of his master and highly regarded because through him the Lord had given victory to Aram. He was a valiant soldier, but he had leprosy. Now bands from Aaron had gone out and had taken captive a young girl from Israel, and she served Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, If only my master would see the prophet who is in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. Naaman went out to his master and told him that the girl from Israel had said, By all means go, the king of Aram replied. I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So Naaman left, taking with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten sets of clothing. The letter that he took to the king of Israel read, With this letter I am sending with my servant Naaman to you, so that you may cure him of his leprosy. As soon as the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his robes and said, Am I God? Can I kill and bring back to life? Why does this fellow send someone to me to be cured of his leprosy? See how he is trying to pick a quarrel with me? When Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his robes, he sent him with this message. Why have you torn your robes? Have the man come to me, and he will know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman went with his horses and chariots and stopped at the door of Elisha's house. Elisha sent a messenger to say to him, Go, wash yourself seven times in the Jordan, and your flesh will be restored, and you will be clean. But Naaman went away angry and said, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God, wave his hand over the spot, and cure me of my leprosy. Are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than any of the waters of Israel? Couldn't I wash in them and be cleansed? So he turned and went off in a rage. Naaman's servants went to him and said, My father, if the prophet had told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? How much more than when he tells you, wash and be cleansed? So he went down and dipped himself in the Jordan seven times, as the man of God had told him, and his flesh was restored and became clean like that of a young boy. Then Naaman and all his attendants went back to the man of God. He stood before him and said, now I know that there is no God in all the world except in Israel. Please accept now a gift from your servant. The prophet answered, As surely as the Lord lives, whom I serve, I will not accept a thing. And even though Naaman urged him, he refused. Well, Mark, thank you for reading for us. Great to have you share that scripture passage with us. You know, I've got to tell you, I was expecting to hear a couple beagles in the background. Some of you probably have met Mark and Patty's two beagles before, maybe at Y Group or something like that. But Jack and Mac, two awesome companions. As you know, though, beagles can be quite vocal. I was waiting to hear them in the background. Mark just read for us one of the great stories of the Old Testament. Not that Bible stories are ranked, but if you had to say, you know, what are some of the key pinnacle moments in scripture or in the Old Testament, this would be one of them. And I say that for two reasons. First, if we had to sum up the whole Bible in one word, it would be the word 
salvation. What is the Bible about? At its core, it is about salvation. The Bible is about God saving us to himself. And as we'll see today, the story of Naaman is ultimately a story about salvation. And the fact that it centers on Naaman is the second thing that really sets this story apart. You see, Naaman was not an Israelite. He was not a member of the people of God in the nation of Israel. He was an Aramean. He was from another country. But it was always God's design to reach the whole world through his people, Israel. He said to Abraham way back in Genesis 12, he said, all peoples on earth will be blessed through you, Abraham, through your family, through the people of Israel. So the story of Naaman's salvation is one of the key missionary texts of the Old Testament. And we see that Naaman joins the ranks of people like Rahab or Ruth or the sailors and Ninevites in the book of Jonah, all non-Israelite people who come to know that the Lord is God. And we see the salvation of the Lord as being sent forth to the ends of the earth, even in the Old Testament. And that is the mission that we now, the New Testament people of God, the church, are still carrying out. And so that's the heart of the matter before us. This story stands apart because it addresses two basic questions that every person longs to answer. And those questions are this. Number one, who can help me? Who can heal me? And number two, what is the purpose of my life? What am I here to do with the days and years that have been given to me? And so as we ask these questions today, I invite you to turn to 2 Kings 5. I have that open in front of you. I've outlined this story in my Bible under four headings, and this will serve as our roadmap today. Number one, Naaman's condition. Number two, a young girl's invitation. Three, God's solution. And then four, Naaman's salvation. And from top to bottom, with that as our outline, you'll see today this story is marked by the unexpected, what I'd call the modus operandi of God. And it begins with the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, the illustrious Naaman. Naaman was the commander of the Aramean army. Now, Aram was one of the neighboring nations that was around Israel. It's up where today we would find the country of Syria. And its chief city was Damascus. What you should know about this place is that Aram was a beautiful place to live. I mean, it had all kinds of attractions. It was a place of culture, of prominence, of economic importance. It was a place with name recognition. I lived a few different places now in my life. And I can tell you there is a distinct difference in how people respond when you say, I live in Southern California versus I live in Zimmerman, Minnesota. All right, one of those gets oohs and ahs, and the other pretty much gets a blank stare. Now, don't get me wrong, I love to live in Zimmerman. It's a great place to live. But in the eyes of the world, you know, on the global stage, Los Angeles is going to win out every time. And Damascus and the kingdom of Aram was one of those places. I mean, it was where you wanted to live. And in that land that appeared on postcards and picture books, there was a man who stood above everybody else, save the king. Naaman was a five-star general. 
I mean, his uniform had so many medals on it that if you or I tried to put it on, we'd probably just tip over. His army had put every other nation into submission. The text says that he was a great man in the eyes of the king, held in highest regard. And he's called a valiant soldier. And and so what that means too is that Naaman was not just military brass behind a desk, but he was like George Washington, you know, who crossed the Delaware and led the troops into the Battle of Trenton. And now he's ascended to the highest ranks and the highest status in the city. Naaman had everything you could ever want or ever achieve, except for one thing in his life that stood in the way. And that was that Naaman had leprosy. Leprosy was a notorious skin disease you might be familiar with and reading from other parts of the Bible. Now, leprosy today is mostly treatable, but even in the United States, did you know that there's 20,000 cases of leprosy diagnosed every year? And in other parts of the world, it's a bigger problem. In Africa, I've seen firsthand how it still devastates people's lives. Esther and I had the chance once to tour a clinic and employment center for people with leprosy that was outside of Addis Ababa. So leprosy still exists. And back in Naaman's day, I mean, it just was one of those illnesses that you feared ever getting. There was no cure for it. It was very painful. It crept across your skin and slowly took claim of your body. And so Naaman's leprosy overshadowed everything else in his life, all of his success. He had everything in the world except freedom from this oppressive disease. So maybe in some ways you can relate to Naaman's condition. Have you ever had just one thing that was standing in the way of everything else? You know, one thing that seems to overshadow the rest of your life. That could be a physical illness like Naaman's, or it could be your parents' divorce, or it could be a job situation, or your finances, or an addiction, or some kind of emotional pain. There's just one thing that causes so much distress and heartache in your life. And maybe you have thought or prayed before in your life, God, if I could just be free of this one thing, if you could free me from this, then I wouldn't need anything else in the whole world. The Bible says that there is something like that in the spiritual realm that overshadows the rest of our life. And it's actually more serious than any medical condition or financial stress or fractured human relationship. And it's what's happened to our relationship with God and a spiritual condition called sin. Sin, it's an uncommon word in our time, but I tell you, it is alive and well. It's, it's like a leprosy of the heart. And our culture will tell you nowadays that you don't need curing. There's nothing wrong with you. The Bible, though, says we need to think about this again. Jeremiah says, the heart is deceitful above all else and desperately sick. Who can cure it? And all you have to do is watch the news or scroll through social media and you get the point. All you have to do is take an honest look in the mirror and you'll understand. Naaman thought that all that stood in the way of perfect happiness was his leprosy. But that's not actually his biggest problem. And that's where this story is leading us. But first, there comes an invitation from a most unlikely source. 
You see, there is in Naaman's impressive household a servant girl from Israel. The text says that she was kidnapped from her family, taken by Aramean raiders who would ride across the border. And now she's a slave in Naaman's house, assigned to serve his wife. And so living with such close access to Naaman, she knows of his despair. She knows of the severity of his condition. Perhaps she sees with her own eyes the leprosy advancing across his body, or she hears the anguish that he shares in personal conversation with his wife. And I want you to keep in mind that this is a slave girl having been ripped away from her family and sold to a master in a distant land. How many nights, I wonder, has she cried herself to sleep? And yet she has compassion on her master, on Naaman, instead of harboring bitterness or anger, which we would say is certainly justified. Instead of malice or callous indifference, she demonstrates mercy. And she says to Naaman's wife in verse 3, she says, If only my master would see the prophet who is in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. And what a profound invitation from this young girl. I'm reminded of what Jesus said in Luke 6. He says, If you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. But love your enemies. Do good to them. Be merciful just as your heavenly Father is merciful. You know, there are these hidden heroes in the biblical text that I just can't wait to meet someday in heaven. And this girl is one of them. You know, she doesn't even get a name in the story. I, I wouldn't even know how to look her up one day. But, but in heaven someday, I'm, I'm going to ask, where is the girl who told Naaman about his healing? She's just a kid. She's a foreign slave. She's a little girl in a world of important men. And God uses her to show us what faithfulness looks like. God uses her to teach us about mercy. I love seeing Julia this morning reading our beginner's Bible and the story about Naaman, because I was reminded as she read it, you know, she could be just like this girl in 2 Kings 5. They could be the same age. Zechariah 4.10 says, Do not despise the day of small beginnings. And don't miss this, that if this nameless servant girl isn't in the story, there is no story. Naaman is left in his leprosy, and you and I are left in our sin. If some small voice doesn't speak up and tell us of the wonderful things that God has done. Do not underestimate what can happen with small beginnings and small people and small acts of faithfulness. Who knows but that God has positioned you for exactly this time to be exactly where you are for exactly his purpose. I've been cleaning a big old four-wheeler this week, 750-pound machine that won't run. And so I've been putzing away a little bit in my garage. And I want to show you what the culprit is. The 750-pound hunk of metal won't run. And you know why? Because of this. Can you even see that? I've been cleaning the carburetor. And so you might recognize that as one of the jets. And this little jet has the tiniest of holes running through it that feeds the engine. 
And if this jet is clogged, that 750-pound four-wheeler isn't going anywhere. Do not despise the day of small beginnings. You don't need name recognition. You don't need the high regard of man. Just faith the size of a mustard seed. And the Lord will move mountains. He moves Naaman to go to Israel. First, he goes to ask permission. And he goes to the Aramean king who says, yes, absolutely. Very enthusiastic. He gives him a letter of recommendation. He is, after all, the king's number one man. So Naaman packs his bags. And you'll notice this travel list he's working with. It says 10 talents of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold, 10 sets of clothing. I pictured in my mind anyway, something like Bruce Wayne, you know, Batman who is uh, packing for a trip. And you remember in those comics that Bruce Wayne is a billionaire. And so too is apparently Naaman. You know, talents and shekels, those aren't terms that really say a lot to you and I. But when scholars do the math here and they draw equivalents, they all say the same thing. Naaman was rich. So he rolls out of town with this entourage behind him and he heads to Samaria, which was the capital city of the northern kingdom of Israel. And it's fascinating to watch how this story operates on human assumptions on so many levels. And then we see God come in and flip those upside down. So why does Naaman take along so much money? Well, because, of course, he's going to pay for this healing that he's going to get. And then where does he go when he gets to Samaria? Well, well of course, he goes to the king, to the C-suite. That's where business gets done, right? But the king of Israel reads Naaman's letter upon his arrival, and he tears his robes. And he says in verse 7, Am I God? Can I kill and bring back to life? Why does this fellow send someone to me to be cured of his leprosy? And then look at his assumption. He says, this must be pretext for war. The king can't offer a solution for leprosy. The king can't heal. He knows that as plain as day. And with that established, Elisha enters the scene and offers a solution that only God can give. Elisha sends a message and says in verse 8 to the king, he says, Why have you torn your clothes? Have the man come to me, and he will know there is a prophet in Israel. Which sounds a lot like that servant girl, doesn't it? And what it really means is this. You know, it's not about the prophet, but what it means is then he will know that there is a God in Israel. So Naaman goes back out to his horses and chariots and heads off to Elisha's house. I was in Washington, D.C. once in high school, just out walking around, and I saw the presidential motorcade on its way somewhere, you know, unannounced, like going to Capitol Hill or something. So these black armored vehicles and the motorcycles and the sirens and lights, this thing can be 30 cars long. And I want you to imagine this kind of motorcade pulling up outside the home of Elisha, probably stretched halfway down the street. And then get this, Elisha sends out a messenger. He doesn't even get up from the couch. He sends out a messenger to say to Naaman, go and wash yourself in the Jordan River, dunk seven times under the water, and that'll take care of it. Messenger goes back inside. <laughs> it's just a, a stunning part of the story. And you think, what? 
I mean, Naaman is thinking, what? I came 200 miles for this? I got the wealth of a small nation in my back pocket for this? Where is the appropriate greeting? Where is the elaborate healing? And he's so angry that in verse 12, he says, Are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters in Israel? And, you know, he makes a good point. He's right. Those two rivers are still there, running down from Mount Hermon, fed by its snow-capped peaks. And they're the principal rivers running still into the city of Damascus, so much cleaner than the muddy Jordan River. It says, Naaman went off in a rage. But again, we see the servants in the story playing a key role. And they reason with Naaman and they say to him, look, if the prophet had said to do something difficult, wouldn't you have done it? But if this is all there is to do, won't you at least give it a try and see what happens? So Naaman does. He dunks himself seven times in the Jordan. And seven is a significant number in the Bible, isn't it? It means wholeness, completeness, perfection. And when Naaman pops out of the water that seventh time, water running off of his head and down his torso, down his face, he's perfectly and fully healed. He goes from a man with sores and patches all over his skin, ulcers on his feet, physical disfigurement, to being a man who is fully restored. It says in the story that his complexion was like that of a kid. And Estee Lauder immediately came and signed him for their next skincare commercial. So what did it? What did it? Was it the prophet? Was it the qualities and properties of the water? Was it some magic trick with the number seven? No. It was God who healed Naaman. I think one of the reasons Elisha never came to the door, never went out of the house, is so that Naaman would know without a doubt God did this. He's the one. And 800 years later, after this story, God would come again in an unexpected way. No entourage from heaven, just a baby in Bethlehem. No palace or prestige, just a carpenter in Galilee. No magic trick or easy out, but death on a cross. And then an empty tomb. This is how our healing has come. In a way where we can only say, God did this. He's the one. And so that's where we finish today. We started with Naaman's condition, and then a young girl's invitation, then God's solution, and now finally, Naaman's salvation. Probably before he's even drip-dried, he gets back in his chariot and heads back to Elisha's house. He knocks on the door and stands before Elisha and says, this is the punchline of the whole story, he says, now I know that there is no God in all the world except in Israel. And that right there is a declaration of faith. When Elisha heard these words, when, when Naaman spoke them at his front door, I bet the heavens rejoiced as he uttered those words. To be able to say those words is the whole point of the Bible. Romans 10.9 says, If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, 
and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. You see, you and I have a condition. And it's one the world is going to try and cover up or gloss over. It is not a popular message to say that our problem is sin, that our hearts are desperately sick and in need of salvation. But you know, you can put makeup on leprosy all day long and you still have a problem. Augustine said, Our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. And he knew he'd had it all. He tried all of the other solutions, but it wasn't until he met the living God and found forgiveness in Jesus Christ that he was truly and fully healed. This weekend, we get to celebrate the freedom that is ours in this nation. And what a gift it is. But there is a freedom that is even greater than a nation's independence. It is a freedom of the heart. When you can answer those two questions, who can help me and heal me? And what is the purpose of my life? And if you've never heard it before, or if you've heard it a thousand times and never took it seriously, then hear me today when I tell you, Jesus is your healer. And the purpose of your life is to be his faithful servant. There is no greater privilege on earth than to follow him. No greater freedom than to have his salvation. To be able to say, now I know there is no God in all the world except the God who saves. Let's pray together. Lord God, some of us have been following you for some time. And perhaps the miracle of our own healing has faded in our memory. Forgive us, Lord. Remind us again today of your salvation. Don't let us slip into amnesia, but let your spirit reawaken our hearts to the joy of your salvation. And for others of us today, Lord, we we know that we have not yet crossed the threshold of faith. And I pray that today would be the day when some among us would finally heed your voice, that we would get down in the water, that we would get down on our knees and receive your healing power, that our restless hearts would finally say, now I know, now I know. Lord, you alone have the power to save. May we see it today in our life, in our nation in each of our hearts. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Y Church Podcast. For more information about the Y Church, check us out online at thewychurch.org.